Hey, welcome to the Kingdom Church Podcast. We're so glad you could join us. You're listening to the third part of our series, Counterfeit Gods. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, sit back, relax. Here it is. Um, we're in a series right now called Counterfeit Gods, and, and we're actually in the middle of a message, and I'll talk more about that in a second. Um, but we're in the same passage of scripture that we were in last week, and so I read the whole thing last week. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but I'm going to read a part that we did not read last week and a part that we did read last week. So Romans chapter 1, just to get us going today, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God, welcome to church, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known to them about God is plain to them, because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that the people are without excuse. So again, we read some of this last week, um, and we literally cut our message in half. So if you're with us last week, last week was part one. This week's part two, same title. This message is called The Sex trade the sex trade you guys can clap your hands one more time you can be seated let's give it up for the worship team amazing who's excited to be in church today so good just so glad you guys could all be here um hey if you're new or visiting or just starting to come my name's harrison and uh just so honored that you could be here today uh as i always say i know there's many places you could be but you found your way here so we're just honored and uh, just excited for what god's going to do today so um as i said off the top we're completing we're concluding a message that we started last week so just by um raise of hands or make some noise. How many of you guys heard part one of this message? <laughs> Few people. Uh, listen, every person watching online, guess what? If you didn't see part one, you can actually exit the tab and go watch it right now. Uh, every person in this building right now that did not see part one, you do not have that privilege. <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you to leave. Uh, instead, I'm going to give a quick recap so we're all on the same page. Even some of you guys here last week, I know life was crazy. You don't remember last week. So can I give a quick recap? And then I'm going to get going. Uh, So again, last week, just kind of talking about this idea of counterfeit gods, what happens uh, when we trade God for sex. Uh, So a couple big points that we said. Number one, we said this. We said creation points to a creator. You guys remember this? Creation points to a creator. So what we said is all of God's grandeur, everything that we see is meant to point back to a creator. Kind of easy way to understand this, right? You guys all have that one person, maybe you are that one person, that they go away to the mountains for the weekend and they're like, oh my gosh, I saw the mountains, I saw the snow, like I just felt, and I I just felt the goodness of God. You guys ever been like that before? Like, wow, there is a God. For me, I don't need to go camping. I don't like camping. Honestly, Wi-Fi does it for me. Because Wi-Fi is kind of like God, right? You can't see it, but you know it's there. And it connects you to more power, right? So that's all I need. I don't got to go camping. Uh, But for some people, right, they see creation and they're like, oh, wow, there's definitely a creator, right? When we we look at people, we said people. When we look into each other's eyes, when we see babies, all of these things, creation points to a creator. You guys remember this? But what we said is that although creation points to a creator, oftentimes we do not see this when it comes to sex. We said that God created sex, but many times we never connect that back to the creator. And so kind of from there, what we said, we said that sex was meant to point us to God. The issue is that when we don't acknowledge uh, that, we often instead just turn sex into God. And uh, for, for this series, kind of our very definition of what a counterfeit God is, we said a counterfeit God is anything that claims to give us what in reality only Jesus can actually give us. And we said perhaps the worst form of a counterfeit God is when instead of looking to the creator, we just worship his creation. And this is what happens so many times with sex. And so what we said, um, that's why we call this the sex trade. We said that when we trade God for sex, in turn making sex our God, it's a bad trade each and every time. So um, just with that and, and kind of one more fundamental thing that we learned last week, uh, we said sex is good. 
I do not want us to forget that. Sex is good because God created it as good. When I said I enjoy sex last week, some of y'all cringed. You're like, did you need to say that, pastor? Yes, I did. So God created it. It is good. And, and, and really, like, that, that's kind of a framework I do not want us to lose today because I think oftentimes when we talk about God's ideal for sex, many times we miss this fundamental idea that sex is inherently good. And so we cannot miss that. I do not want you to miss that. The issue is never with sex. It's what we do with it. Kind of what we said. So um, that's where we were, and we literally left off there. Right? We said, it's not going to be good when you worship sex. God has more uh, for us than that. And so this morning, um, I'm going to teach. You guys okay? Uh, there's there's going to be quite a bit of teaching. So all you note takers, which should be everyone, um, bring out your notepads because I got, I got a lot of stuff I'm going to teach today. And so really what I want us to see is kind of three things. I want us to see God's intention for sex. I want us to see the deeper meaning behind sex. And I want us to see what the counterfeit sex looks like. Can we do that? You guys ready? All right, here we go. So Romans chapter one, this is where we were last week. We looked at different aspects of it. Um, I didn't read verse 18 last week because you guys weren't ready for verse 18 last week. This week, you guys are ready for it. Um, And it kind of actually sets the backdrop of a lot of what we talked about um, in in part one. So Romans chapter one, this is written by Paul to um, Christians. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of the people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what has been known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So you guys might remember we kind of talked about the second part um, of this last week about God revealing himself, right? Creation uh, points to a creator. Today, we're going to really study this first part, at least to begin, uh, this idea of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed. The wrath of God is being poured out. Now, if you've been in church for a long time, or maybe even not in church, and you hear this, this kind of this sentence or this word, the wrath of God, you kind of tighten up a little bit, right? Like, we don't like the wrath of God. Like, like most of us like the version of Jesus. I call him hippie Jesus. Like he smokes a blunt and just says love, bro. Like that's the Jesus we like, right? Like I love hippie Jesus. Wrath of God, like oh my gosh. I'm a little bit tense, but I really want us to understand what this means, because here is the truth. We're going to break this down. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, what he's saying, he's saying, when people worship the created things rather than the creator, this is when the wrath of God is poured out. So in the context of our message, you can say it like this. When we as humans, when we worship sex instead of God, we are setting ourselves up for the wrath of God. If you're in church today and you struggle sexually, I'm looking out. Some of you guys are getting even more tense. If you struggle sexually, guess what? You're setting yourself up for the wrath of God. If you're new today, you're like, what kind of a church is this? But what I want us to understand, because uh, it's true, very true, when you worship the created things rather than the creator, specifically when you worship sex over God, you are setting yourself up to experience the wrath of God. However, we need to understand what the wrath of God looks like and what the wrath of God is. Because for many of us, we have a mental picture of fire and brimstones and someone poking us with a stick. It's none of those things. We're going to see the wrath of God because Paul explains it. Romans 1, 24, moving forward, because he does the whole creation bit. Then he says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. So this right here is explaining what the wrath of God is. And for a lot of us, maybe even those of us that grew up in church, it's going to be different than what you think it is. What is the wrath of God? And I'm a, I'm a kind of theologically geek out for a second. Can I do that? I'm going to go on a tangent, but I just want you to understand what I'm saying. Uh, and so you know it's true. A lot of us, when we view the wrath of God, we view it as something that God does to us. But when we understand specifically the context of Romans chapter 1, what does he say the wrath of God actually is? 
He says, when you decide to worship sex or created things over God, he says, the wrath of God is not doing anything. It's the opposite. It's actually God stepping back and handing you over to your sinful desires. So what's the wrath of God? It's not God doing something. It's actually God taking a step back and letting you do what you want to do. Now, some of us are kind of confused. Like, what does that actually mean? Well, here's the implication. I want us to understand this. Humanity or humans left to our own devices will do worse things to ourselves than God would ever do to us. And so we will actually experience the wrath of God. Now, here's the part where I'm going to theologically geek out for a second. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis. If you're new to the Bible, just hold on for a second. I'm doing this because it excites me. and I'm, I thought it was cool. So Genesis, what happens is this. Sin enters the world. And when sin enters the world, once again, it is not God that does anything. It is more so the presence of God being retracted and humans are left to do what they want. And so what the Bible says is that humanity got so bad, God saw all that the humans did and the wickedness that was in their heart. And so the Bible actually says God says that he could not bear it anymore. And so he was going to send a flood in 120 years, all this stuff. Now, a lot of us, when we understand the flood story, we think of that as the wrath of God. Well, that's God pouring out his wrath. False. The wrath of God was before that, when God stepped back and essentially allowed humans to do what they wanted to do. And what the Bible says, when the humans did what they want to do, wanted to do, it got so bad, it got so evil, that when God came with the flood, God was not coming with wrath, he was actually coming with mercy. You need to understand this, God's judgment is actually more merciful than it is wrathful. I don't know if wrathful is a word. So take it forward because we're going to go all the way to the end of time. This is important because a lot of us, when we think of end times, we think wrath of God. Wrong. Paul says from the time of Jesus, he says right now the wrath of God is being poured out. What does that mean? It means the wrath of God is most displayed when we do whatever we want. Because in our own ways, in our own wickedness, in our own sinfulness, what we do to ourselves is actually worse than anything God would ever do to us. And so that is what it means to experience the wrath of God. Interesting, right? So here's, what relevant, here's what's relevant for today. Here's where we're going. You want to experience the wrath of God when it comes to sexuality. Do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, with whoever you want. In other words, do you. Just do you. God hands you over. In other words, God allows you to do what you want. And the point is this. When we ignore the ways of God, we will experience more pain, heartbreak, and damage than we could ever, um, and more so that God would ever even want to inflict on us. He does not want to inflict it on us. And so the wrath of God is more so when we allow ourselves to do what we want. And truth be told, you don't have to raise your hands. I'm sure all of us at times have felt the pain of when we step out of God's design for sexuality. We felt the pain, we felt the heartbreak, we felt the hurt. And so I want us to understand if sex is good, in God's design, there is no, there's no plan where we experience hurt or heartbreak. All God wants us to do is experience the goodness of the gift. And so what I, I'm going to try to do today is I want us to understand the goodness of the gift so that we never have to experience the pain and more so we never have to experience the wrath of God. Does that make sense? Now, for a lot of us, we read the verse, um, it says God handed them over. God gave them over to their sinful desires. Now, for a lot of us, it might be like, well, why would God give us over? Like, why would God give up on us? Here's the thing you need to understand, and it's very nuanced the way that Paul says it. When Paul writes it like that, he is not saying that God gives up on you. He's saying God gives you over. In other words, he allows you to do something, but God does not give up. This is important. God never gives up on us. He is a God of love, of grace, of mercy. His mercy is renewed every single day. So God never gives us, God, God, God never gives up, but God does give us over. And we need to understand this from the perspective of a parent. Because when a parent ever allows their child to do something, specifically something that they don't like, there's generally a reason for it. I'll try to explain it like this. It's kind of a tame example. Um, but 
Um, we, we have three kids uh, and, and two of our girls are twins, two years old. Um, they're amazing. And uh, I always laugh when people say like, I have three kids, like two dogs and a cat. Um, <laughs> you have animals, you don't have kids. Um, however, if you love your animals, love them. Um, but uh, children are not animals, is kind of the point I was making. Um, however, there are times when children act like animals. Um, specifically, my girls kind of act like dogs. Uh, whenever I'm eating, they crowd me and they always want a bite of my food, <laughs> just like a dog. And uh, generally speaking, like, I'll give them a bite because um, they're really cute and uh, it's really hard when they're like, Daddy, one bite. One more. One more. Um, but there's times when I'm eating something and, like, I know for a fact they're not going to like it. Like, there's times when it's, like, it's spicy. Like, I like spicy food. Um, they're not ready for that. And so they'll crowd me, and they're like, Daddy, one bite. One bite. And I'm like, I'm like no, like, you're not going to like it. Like, trust me, like, you won't like it. Like, it's spicy, it's spicy, it's spicy. And they'll say, one bite, one bite, one bite. And they will not leave. <laughs> and so what I have to do eventually, and again, it's a tame example, is I just say, you know what, okay. I'll give you a bite. And what happens each and every time I give them a bite, specifically of something I know they're not going to like, you know what happens? They make a face and they spit it out. And I'm left cleaning up the mess. <laughs> but the reason that I have to do it sometimes is because what happens, and again, I want us to understand this parental perspective, especially when it comes to God. The reason that God hands us over and allows us to do what we please is because God knows sometimes as children, there is literally no way that he can say no. You're going to do what you want to do. Now, the heart of God is not for you to experience pain, not in the slightest. So the part of the metaphor I want us to understand is not this idea that God is allowing you to do something so you get hurt. It's more so God saying, hey, you do what you want because I'm not going to force you what to do. But the picture I want you to remember, because it's the same picture of God, is when I'm there cleaning up the stuff they spat out, I want you to understand when you mess up, guess what? The Father is there to clean up your mess. He's there to meet you in the midst of it, to love you with arms wide open. But again, when we understand this language, or I'm really trying to go, is that when God hands us over or when God allows us to do what we will, it's with the hopes that one day we'll come back. It is with the hopes that we can experience the goodness that he has for us. And unfortunately, some of us have to go through pain, heartbreak, and devastation to realize, oh, God has something better. Now, I want to speak for one second on that because I met a lot of people. And they're like, you know what? I'm just someone that has to experience something before I know it's wrong. Um, in the name of Jesus... Uh, the Bible calls you a fool. That's the definition of a fool. And the reason that we lean into wisdom and we lean into Jesus is because Jesus is saying, hey, guess what? You can learn it all and not have to experience the pain. And so my hope today as we go through this and, uh, is that you don't have to experience the pain. Um, and if you've already experienced the pain, I want us to show how Jesus is always there on the other side. So here's kind of our big idea for today um, as we understand what's going on. The reason we want to stay into God's design is because God's design for sex is good. Uh, when we step out of it, it ceases to be good. So you can put it like this, sin distorts whatever God designs. Sin distorts whatever God designs. Romans says, again, we will experience the passive wrath of God when we step out of God's design because we're experiencing a distorted version of the good thing that God created. So um, again, just kind of want us to understand that because a lot of us are like, well, what's the bad thing that's going to happen? Um, simple, you. You're the bad thing <laughs> that's going to happen. Um, so again, now I'm going to start teaching. You're like, Harrison, what was that? That was teaching. I'm going to teach some more. Told you a lot of teaching. So again, three things we're going to learn. Purpose for sex, the deeper meaning for sex, and the counterfeit version of it. So Genesis chapter 2. We're really studying today. Uh, I think in order for us to understand God's vision for sexuality, let's go very back to the beginning. Let's go back to the very beginning, I should say. Um, and this is the story uh, where God creates Eve and we see the very first marriage. So Genesis chapter two, second chapter in the Bible is where we are. Uh, this is what it says. Uh, God creates Eve. The Bible says, verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, 
for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So a lot going on there, and we're going to break this down uh, as we go along. But here's the thing I want us to understand. Some of us are like, well, what is God's version for sex? What does it look like? It's pretty simple. Can I explain it to you? God's vision for sex. You can write it on one line. One man, one woman, in the context of marriage. That's God's design. Super simple. One man, one woman, in the context of marriage. Now, for a lot of people, um, specifically if you're in tune with the Bible, um, you'll say, hey, how come the Bible never explicitly says uh, that you can't have sex before marriage? It never says it, so can't I just do it? Um, what you need to understand is in the context of specifically the Old Testament, um, God's vision for sexuality is that it is intr- intrinsically connected to marriage. In other words, God's vision and version of sexuality Uh, and sex does not exist outside of marriage. So it does not specifically need to say don't have sex before marriage because the assumption when God created sex was that sex was designed exclusively and only for marriage. That's his design. And so again, when we step out of that is when we experience the distorted. But from Genesis chapter two, um, I want us to understand again the deeper meaning behind sex. So from the verses we just read, we learn three things about sex. We learn that sex is all about intimacy, it's about identity, and it's about exclusivity. Beside exclusivity, you can write in brackets if you want security. From sex, from God's design of sex, we get three things. We get intimacy, identity, and security, or exclusivity. Whatever, uh, whatever word um, you enjoy better. <laughs> So within that, these three things, intimacy, identity, security, what I want us to do today is I want to understand them two ways. I want us to understand them horizontally. In other words, how does sex help me see things on earth? How do I see it horizontally? And a lot of us, I think we understand that, right? When we think of sex, we generally think of another person and we think of it horizontally. What a lot of us don't do when we think about sex is we don't take it vertically. In other words, how does this point to God? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show us horizontally what it means and then at the end, why it's all supposed to bring us vertically. Does that make sense? So let's explain and go through these three things because these three things are God's ideal and what he wants for us when it comes to sex. So again, Genesis chapter two, here's the first one. It says, the man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Here's the first thing we learn about. We learn about intimacy. So again, this is poetic language. This is literally Adam getting his Shakespeare on. But from this, we see that the very first sexual experience was deeply intimate, right? He says, this is the bone of my bone, the flesh of my flesh. The language that, 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 that Adam is using here and that is recorded in Genesis is showing that when it comes to sexuality, the union is deeper than just physical. And it is to understand that the union is deeper than just physical. There's a spiritual union. There's an intimate union. In the Old Testament, when it talks about the word sex, it's literally the Hebrew word yada. And what yada means is, is, is literally translated to know. So in some translations, it will say, Adam knew his wife. When I was young, I said, Mom, I'm reading the Bible. How come they can know each other and have a kid? It didn't make sense because my Bible said, Adam knew Eve and they had Abel. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like they could just know each other? But the reason that to know and sex is is one and the same in the Old Testament, it's telling us something. It's telling us that sex, again, is not purely physical. It is intimate. You are actually knowing someone. There is something happening far beyond just physical. There is something happening at a deeper level that is spiritual. You are knowing someone. So again, the, the vertical understanding of sex. What is one of the reasons God has given us sex? It is so we can experience an intimacy like no other. Does that make sense? Here's the counterfeit. God's version of sex is about intimacy. The counterfeit version of sex says that sex is all about physicality. What does that mean? It means sex is just about feeling good. That's the counterfeit version. Sex isn't about intimacy, it's only about physicality. 
And what happens is this, and this is why this is so important. If we do not understand the deeper meaning of sexuality, a lot of times we will have longings inside of us. And many times I would call them holy longings. But if we do not understand the deeper things, what that means is that we will long after the surface level things and we will not find what we're actually looking for. In the words of Isaiah 44 from the very first week, it says, many people do not stop and think, what do I actually want? You see, for a lot of people, they think, man, I just want something physical. I'm just looking for a release. I'm just looking for something. What the Bible lets us know is that you are not actually primarily looking for physicality. You're looking for intimacy. Is everyone following? I told you I'm teaching today. There's no preaching today. Just, just teaching. So what that means is this. There are two ways, most practically, that the counterfeit version of God's sex manifests itself in a purely physical form. Number one is through porn, and number two is through what we're calling hookup culture. Those are two ways when you get a counterfeit version of God's sex. Those things will feel good, but the issue is you're not looking just for something physical, you're actually looking for something intimate. And so you'll always be caught searching. The, the reason that pornography is, is probably the most counterfeit of intimacy is because it's a solo job. It's just you and a screen and a magazine if it's the 90s. But it is a counterfeit version of what God has for us because God's vision of sexuality to know bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, it is this intimate experience and it is nothing to do with just you. It is not a solo job. And so pornography is a cheap counterfeit of what we're actually looking for. And so what happens is this, we have a generation of people thinking, well, this is a normal thing I want. This is a normal thing I need. Everyone does it, it's just natural, it's just normal. Here's the issue, it's not what you're looking for. There's a study that was done at the university um, about kind of this generation that was dubbed one of the first generations that has grown up with internet pornography. And at the end of this study, this is Naomi Wolf, um, this is the conclusion she came to, which was so interesting. She said, it became clear that after having a decade of access to the internet, people were intimately familiar with porn, but intimacy and the hearts of the opposite sex were more elusive than ever. Here's the point of what she's saying. She's saying there were so many people, specifically men, that were so connected to porn, they actually did not know how to foster a real-life relationship. Why is this devastating? It's devastating because your heart's cry and your heart's desire is intimacy. And there's a generation of people that legitimately and literally do not know how to get intimate. It's because they have bought the lie that I'm just looking for something physical. And so there's a generation of people where it's just, it's eluded them. It's more elusive than ever. Now, hookup culture, I'm gonna talk about really with point number three in a little bit, but it's the same assumption. It's the same assumption, this idea that we're just physical beings. I call this, and Nancy Piercy, my girl, she calls us the low view of humanity. Um, she's a psychologist, only my sister got that. Um, she's not my girl. Christy's my girl. Um, but Nancy Piercy's an author I enjoy. Um, she calls it a low view of humanity, and a low view of humanity says, I'm just a physical being. I came and I evolved from animals, and so the need that I feel is purely physical. She said, it's a low view of humanity. Because if you have that idea, you have that view, I'm just an animal, just looking for some pleasure, it makes sense. However, if you believe that we're created in the image of God and we strive and crave for something more, the consequences of pornography and hookup culture is what Romans chapter one says is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being poured out. What does the wrath of God look like? It looks like a young man that does not know how to foster a real relationship. It's devastating, but we don't see it because as Isaiah says, we never stop and think. And so here's a point I want us to understand. God's version of sexuality is never limiting. It's always liberating. Counterfeit sex says I'm all about liberation, but at the end of the day, it will actually liberate you. So the first thing that we're looking for is intimacy on a horizontal level. We are looking for intimacy. So that's the first one. Number two, Genesis chapter two, verse 23. Um, it says again, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, uh, taken from man. Verse 24, this is why 
a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. Here's the second thing that sex and sexuality gives us. It gives us identity. Now, identity asks and answers the primary question, who am I? That's what identity is about. And so um, in God's version, in God's vision of sexuality, um, your identity literally changes. Again, think about it like this. The very first sexual encounter you're supposed to have in God's vision is when you get married. And so what that means is the moment that you have sex, you now have a new identity. How so? You go from single to married. That's a new identity. In biblical language, it says one and one, two beings become one. That gives me a new identity on, on a really low-hanging fruit level. Um, a lot of times, you get a new last name. That's, that's a new identity. And so in God's version of sexuality, this is really important, you get a new identity. Here's the thing. This new identity that you get is a shift in status more than anything. It's a new identity, but it is not your primary identity. Our primary identity is always vertical. It has to do with Jesus. I'll get to that in the end. But intrinsically, in God's vision, in God's version of sexuality, there is always a shift in identity. And this is why it's so important to understand this. Because in the counterfeit version of sex, identity is also tied to it. But it's not the identity that you actually need. And so in the counterfeit version of sex, what does it look like? It looks like a couple of things. Number one, my identity is tied to my relational status, meaning a lot of people actually don't think they're complete until they're married. Like I'm not full, I'm not good enough. That is a lie from the devil. What the Bible says is, is that one and one came together and they became one. It's weird math, right? But what it does not say is that a half and a half came together and become one. That's better math, but that's not God's math. Because if it was a half and a half, the implication would be that you are actually incomplete until you get married. That's not what he says. He says it's one whole being coming together with another whole being, and they become one new unit that is a new identity. The version of sex that the bachelor sells is that you're a half a person looking for another half of a person, and until you guys come together, you don't actually have what you're looking for. That's a lie. You're already complete. You're already whole. i got to calm down. I said I wasn't going to preach today. I'm just teaching. And so what's going to happen, and I think this happens so often, is that we begin to think that sex and sexuality is our primary identity. It is not. It is a part of who you are, but it is not who you are. Now, the reason we have that subtle pull is because, of course we do, because in God's vision of sexuality, identity is a part of it. But counterfeits, again, always leave you wanting more. And so what happens is a generation of people, I think, worshiping relational status. Like, if I just find someone, then I'll be whole. The very same thing happens with gender because we make gender absolutes. It's like, well, if I, if, I, if I can't, you know, find who I am in a relationship, maybe I need to find my primary identity in my gender. I'm a man. I hunt. That's just who I am. I'm a woman. X, Y, Z. And so what happens is we begin to place these things on pedestals and on levels to give us a form of identity that they were never supposed to give us. You are a man. You are a woman. But that is not primarily who you are. Those roles are more functional than anything. And God has created them in such a way that when we are put into marriage, it works to create a new family unit. But I can't go any deeper than that because I don't got time and it's a whole sermon. Point is this, with God's version of sexuality, we get a new identity, but that identity is not primarily who we are. And so outside of God's design, it'll always leave us wanting more and more than anything, it'll leave us confused because we'll be looking for identity in relational status, sexual orientation, gender, so on and so forth. And those things are not actually what you're looking for. And so in the same way that intimacy leaves us hanging, identity is the same thing. If you build your identity in anything other than Jesus, you're setting yourself up for failure. Because here's the last thing I'll say on this. If you get married, believing this person will complete you, when you get into marriage, the thing that's going to happen is you're going to realize that person wasn't what I was looking for. 
Marriage is good, but it's not God. Other implication means you don't need to be married, but you do need God. Second thing is identity. So um, that's all makes sense? Cool, hope it all makes sense. Genesis chapter 2, 24, 25, last thing. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I love that verse. I think it's one of the most beautiful verses in all of scripture. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Here's the last thing our hearts desire and our last thing our hearts crave. Our hearts crave security. Our hearts crave exclusivity. You need to understand this. God's vision and God's version of sex is extremely, extremely exclusive. We talk about intimacy and intimacy and exclusivity are connected because I think the highest form of intimacy is always found in exclusivity. In other words, I can only be who I am fully if I have the belief that the other person is not going to leave me, that the other person is going to accept me, that the other person is there for me. Whenever there is this idea this person might leave and specifically the devastation of hookup culture that says I'm actually planning on leaving is that your heart's craving security and you're getting the opposite. Now, what's interesting, and I told you, um, I talk about hookup culture in this, um, our heart craves what our heart craves. This is important. I could say it another way. You cannot fight against your biology. So one of the things that's interesting um, within the context of hookup culture, there's this idea, again, that I can have sex with people, with multiple people, and there's going to be little to no consequences. I'm a dude, I'm a woman, I can do what I want. Now, the issue is that our biology says something different. So, I'm going to get a little bit biological, um, because I think the biology supports the theology. Um, So, in uh, in a woman's body, one thing that a woman produces, um, men do as well, but women more so, um, is something called oxytocin. And uh, in a woman's body, specifically when she gives birth, her body's pumping oxytocin. And after she gives birth, every single time that she begins to feed her child, breastfeed her child, um, her body releases oxytocin. Scientists call this the bonding uh, hormone. And so literally one of the things that happens when you're breastfeeding is that a woman is being bound to her baby, right? Um, If you're like a real naturalist, they'll say something like, well, you have that chemical so you don't kill your baby right? Bonds you to it. Now, I don't believe that because I think we're more than animals, but I digress. But here's the thing. When a woman has sex, guess which is the number one chemical in her body that is released? Oxytocin. And so what happens is every single time a woman has sex, there is something biologically, something chemically happening that is actually attaching her to the man. And so what happens, and I say we're fighting against chemistry and biology, is you can say, hey, I'm just here to hook up. I'm just here for a good time. Guess what? Your body's not there for a good time. They're there to connect. They're there to bond. In the words of the Bible, they are there to become one. Men, we're not quite off the hook either. In our bodies, something is released called vasopressin, which essentially has the same function as oxytocin. And so there's also this myth You guys might have heard this. It says, well, women, um, they get attached, but men don't. You guys heard this? Men don't really get attached. Lie from the pits of hell. You can clap your hands. (laughs) Because in the same way that a woman releases something, so does a man. Why? Because we have a creator who is revealed in creation, and his design is that we be one that we'd be intimate, that we'd be exclusive. And so God literally gives us chemistry to bind us together. It's interesting because Paul only talks theologically, but I think he knew what he was saying. First Corinthians chapter six, look what it says. He says, talking of men, he says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? He then quotes Genesis, for it is said, the two will become one flesh. Now, in in the larger context, Paul's making the point that saying sex is not just physical. There's something more. 
So I'll give you guys one stat. I thought it was so interesting because again, it's like, well, men don't connect. Here's what's crazy. This is with prostitution. Men who hire prostitutes, two thirds of the time, they will hire the same prostitute over and over and over again. Why? Well, perhaps they've been attached to them in some way, whether they want it or not, because God has created us in such a way. Miriam Grossman, who's a psychiatrist, she says it like this. She says, you might say, we're designed to bond. You might say, God has created us to bond. You see, the counterfeit version says, more is better. In fact, more is liberating. But what the Bible says is what what, what God has brought together, let no one separate. And I'm not here to shame anyone that has separated. I more than anything want to explain your pain. And the reason we go through such heartbreak is because you've literally ripped something apart that chemically speaking was never meant to rip apart. And that process is very painful. Now the beauty of Jesus, as I said, is he's there to pick up the pieces. He's there to meet us in our mess. And the beauty is you don't come across, you don't come out as less of a person because you didn't go in as half a person, you're a full person. But what God wants to do is he wants to heal our hearts. But the pain again, is what Romans chapter one calls the wrath of God, right? It's the wrath. Because here's the thing. You can say, I want casual sex. I want casual release. But guess what? Our bodies aren't casual. Our responses aren't casual. We're not fragmented beings, but we're whole beings created in the image of God. And we long for intimacy. We long actually for a new identity with someone, to forge a family. We long for exclusivity. We long for security. And so here's the thing. These things, and what this means, again, as creation points to a creator, is that horizontally speaking, what sexuality gives us are three things that every single human being needs. We all need intimacy, we all need identity, and we all need security. And so some of us are saying, well, if I'm not married, how do I get those things? The beauty is that sex and marriage give us those things, but they are not the only things in the world to give us that. There's many ways to be intimate. I think you need a friend that you have an intimate relationship, a friend that knows your soul inwards and outwards that you can share your life with. Intimacy does not always have to be sexual. And that's the lie of our culture. that says, if I'm intimate with someone, this must be sexual. It's a lie. Your soul craves intimacy. At the same time, identity, so many ways. Guess what? One of the beauties of coming to church is that church actually gives you identity. It gives you a tribe that you can do life with. That's part of why we hang out together. That's why I despise when people say, I go to your church. I hope you go to your, I hope hope it becomes my church. I hope it becomes your identity. I hope it becomes your tribe, the place you identify with because you need an identity. Church is a place to get that. Security, same thing. You need people that hold your heart. And and one of the best places to get that is family. God's design is not an accident. All All three of these things you can get from family. Identity, security, intimacy. God has designed it in such a way. So I think we understand it horizontally, but I want us to understand it vertically. Because as I said, the whole kind of point of this message was that when God reveals something in creation, it's, a point, it's supposed to point back to a creator. Paul gives us, I think, exactly what he means. This is so interesting. Ephesians chapter five. And it's funny because the New Testament, Jesus, all of them are always quoting Genesis two. That's why I went there. But he says this. He says, Ephesians five thirty one. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. We just read that, right? He says, this is a profound mystery, right? It's like the math doesn't make sense. But then he says this. He says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now it's kind of like, he's quoting marriage. Now he's talking about Christ and the church. What's going on? Now, The Bible does this not by mistake, and Jesus knew what he was doing. But the overarching metaphor in the New Testament is simple. It's as simple as this. Jesus is the groom, and the church is the bride. That's that's the metaphor in the New Testament. 
And so what that means when we take these two things together, marriage gives us a picture of God because the very same things that we experience in marriage, we were supposed to experience and we will one day in full experience with God. Intimacy, identity, exclusivity. Now, the reason this is important is because if you view sex as ultimate, it will ultimately let you down. Some of us think if I just get married, that's all I need. Wrong. Because if you have sex within the confines of marriage and you only look horizontally, you're missing the point. And I'm going to speak candidly. This one was really hard for me, specifically the metaphor of Christ being the bride or being the groom and me being the bride. Maybe it works for girls. It's kind of hard for me. I'm like, Christ is my groom? I'm like, <laughs> what does that mean? But when I understand this principle that even the act of sex is a metaphor for something deeper, meaning intimacy, exclusivity, identity, the idea of Christ being the, the, the groom and us being the bride, it's not a literal gender kind of thing. It's a metaphor for the feelings that God has for us and the relationship he wants to foster with us. In other words, what he's saying, he's saying, let me think of the most strong connection that there is on earth. That is how I feel for you. That is how Jesus feels for us. And so what this means is these three things, intimacy, identity, and exclusivity, we can all get from Jesus. In fact, what our hearts actually long is to experience this with Jesus. Can I explain intimacy for a second? Intimacy above all is to be seen and to be known. Even within the confines of marriage, your wife, your spouse, your husband, whatever it is, they do not know you fully. It should get as close as humanly possible if you want to have a good relationship, but they do not know you fully. There is only one person that knows you fully, sees you fully, has seen every intimate thought you have had, bad thought you've had, good, and that is Jesus. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Nothing in all of creation is hidden from his sight. We are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. I don't have a, I don't have a text for this, I'm sorry. But this language is so interesting. We are all naked and exposed before God. He sees it all. Look what it says next. It says, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confessions for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. What does that mean? It means Jesus has seen everything. He's seen us all naked and exposed. And what does he say? He says, come. He says, come a little closer. He says, come to the throne. That is the intimacy our hearts crave. And that is the intimacy that we literally cannot get on a horizontal level. It's not going to happen. And so if we only look horizontally, our hearts will long. As Augustine says, our hearts are longing until they find rest. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. Because all of these things, the best gifts, the gift of sex, of intimacy, was supposed to point us back to Jesus. Yeah. Identity. Come on, somebody. Yeah. This is the thing our world desperately is looking for. The question, who am I? Am I single? Am I, am I a male? Am I a female? What, what is my identity? Guess what? You're not looking for any of those things. And the more you look to those things, the more dissatisfied you will become because you're looking for a category that cannot fit your whole soul. The soul of humanity is way too big to fit into something as small as male, female, single, married. The grandeur of God belongs in one place only, and that's with back with Jesus. Galatians chapter 2 says it so beautifully. It says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You want to know the identity you're looking for? It's not relational. 
It's one thing and one thing only. You're looking to become one with Jesus. I'm looking to become one with Jesus. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Who am I? I'm Harrison, crucified with Christ. Everything else is secondary. I'm a pastor. Yep. I'm a father. Yep. I'm a husband. Yep. I'm a man. Yep. But none of those things will bring me what I'm looking for. What I'm mainly looking for is crucified with Christ. That's what my heart desires. That's what my heart longs for. And in the, in the beauty of the family unit that sex gives us, again, it's just a picture. It's just a metaphor to point us to something more. Last thing again security, exclusivity. I want to know that my heart will be held tightly. This is the thesis of the whole series. The reason we go to counterfeit gods is because we believe that those things, be it money, sex, power, we believe those will hold our heart. There's only one thing, only one person, is Jesus. He is what our hearts are looking for. He is what we crave. He is what we need. And the beauty, listen to this, and maybe you've experienced it. I know we have some great marriages in this church. Maybe you've experienced what it likes, what it's like to feel like your heart is held tightly, to feel like you're secure where you are. Guess what? That's just a picture. I read this and it touched me kind of just in a new way. He says, and this is from a book, put the quote up, I forget who was by, um, Mike Mason. He says this, he says, my wife's body is brighter and more fascinating than a flower, shyer than any animal and more breathtaking than a thousand sunsets. To me, her body is the most awesome thing in all of creation. Trying to look at her, trying to take in her wild and glorious beauty. I love this part. I catch a glimpse of what it means that men and women have been made in the image of God. If even, look at this, if even the image is this dazzling, what must the original be like? When I read that, I finally understood what it meant when Christ is the groom and we're the bride. If this picture on earth we have of marriage is really good, something we all strive for, something a lot of us want, how much better is Jesus? How much better is his union? How much better, how much more so can he hold my heart? How much more so is identity found in him? What does intimacy with the Father look like? If the image is this dazzling, what must the original be like? What if that was the posture that we took for every good thing that came from God? If the image is this dazzling, what must God be like? Come on, when I go into nature, if the, if the image, if, 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 the, if the work of God is this dazzling, what must the creator be like? What if we stop striving after sex as something that we need, something that completes us, something that fulfills us, and began to look at it as a signpost to Jesus and the relationship our hearts actually desire? And here's the beauty with everything. God wants us to have all of these things. God wants us to have intimacy. God wants us to experience his goodness. But all of it is a picture back to the one that holds it all together. Thank you so much for listening to that message. If you want more information, head over to kingdomchurch.ca. We'd love to connect with you and walk with you on this journey. Until next time, take care.